Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and this podcast happened because of a reschedule of a different podcast. We had someone booked in, they couldn't make it at the last minute. Nick and I rarely have some time just set aside to do a podcast, so we thought we would just sit down and chat together, and it, we talked about money and the difference between a debt-based money system and sound money. We talked about the petrodollar system, we talked about the amount of debt in the economy right now, and rolled through a whole bunch of topics that were just top of mind for us. So that's what happened in this podcast. So totally a bit of an accident, but I think there was enough stuff in there that was of interest that it's still a useful podcast to listen to. I hope so anyway. So that's why we're putting this one out and we called it uh, Money, the Money System, Debt-Based Currencies for that reason. That's what we discussed throughout this podcast. And listen, if you are listening to this podcast and you're trying to figure out the real estate market, which has just slowed down in the greater Toronto area, um, and you're trying to figure out if now's the right time to get in. Do you wait for prices to change? Do, are they going to go up again later this year? And you're trying to figure out the fundamental data points that you need to make sense of the market for yourself. You can find out a whole bunch of information that we put out on this topic at our website, rockstarinnercircle.com. There you'll find different reports on this topic. We'll have access. To, you'll have access to different digital copies of our books on this, these topics. We have our links to our YouTube videos, other episodes of this podcast. It's all available to you on that website. And we also do a free introductory real estate investing class where we always talk about the latest in the real estate market. So you can register for that class there. Nick and I stick around at the end and answer all um, questions that come our way. So you can find all of that type of thing at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's rockstarinnercircle.com. That's enough with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, I'm not even joking. You can hear me right. Loud and clear. Okay. You can hear me proper. Um, so this chart, this is what I wanted to talk about. This chart came up. I mentioned it on the Lynn Alden podcast when we had Lynn Alden on last week and released that podcast. It's one of the charts we use in the economic update. It's something she actually put out that I thought really does. I think if you understand this chart, you kind of can predict what's going to happen for the rest of the 2020s. And the way this chart is, I know we're just diving into this, everyone, so just stick with us. We're just going in right into the economics stuff. Here. Yeah, it, yeah, we're diving. I got sidetracked by the headline that's, I guess, uh, the ad. Oh, no, sorry. What's happening next to the chart? That about Jada Pinkett Smith breaks silence after husband Will slapped Chris Rock following his joke. Oh, she said something now. <laughs> so I, I was just we click on that link? No, no, we shouldn't click. I don't <laughs> do want to. Do we stay with the global macroeconomic picture or do we click on yeah. the link of what did Jada Pinkett Smith say after the Oscars? I think I only watched that video no, no. twice. So I think I'm like, I'm on the under of the people that watched it, like for the over-unders. I think I watched it, watched it, it. Uh, that Monday because I hadn't heard of it. And when we played it at our team meeting, I think I watched it like 10 times. And now the, the memes on the slap are just incredible. Have you seen all the memes that uh, came up? The last few days I've stayed almost completely off any social media uh, of anything. So you didn't see, the, uh, do you know that younger comedian Andrew, not super young, Andrew Schultz, I think his name is, he did a response act to Will Smith and used Jada Pinkett Smith, her name, right through his 10 minute, he just like made jokes about no. her for 10 minutes. Oh, and his whole point was, you can't tell a comedian what to say and not to say, it's comedy. Yeah. So now I'm really going to show you 
what it's like when someone says your wife's name over and over again. And for 10 minutes, he has this segment. It must be on YouTube. Somebody sent it to me. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's, it, well, it's I, pretty I jaw-dropping. I, I saw that a, a lot of the comics went, uh, you know, were, were supporting Chris Fox saying, like, it's, you know, it's just comedy. You can't get up and go hit a comic. Well, I think it's, it's comedy. It's like the last true area of free speech in our freaking world at yeah, this point. Yeah, it feels like it's not the last true area. I think that disappeared as well. Because a lot well, of comics like have been bel- taking over the coals a little bit for things they've seen recently. But yeah. Yeah, but in general, I feel like some comedians then can get away with almost anything. And I think I want that world. Now, I do. I, I I mean, but I, you know, I don't take myself too seriously either. So I'm okay. Cause I know there's people listening to this right now. They're like, why is Nick even talking? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So I just mean like everyone, you're just never going to make yeah. everyone happy. So you can't take in life. I, I just, for me, look, it's something Kennedy told us a long time ago, uh, just about as an entrepreneur, just having thick skin. Mm-hmm. And cause, cause little stuff used to bug me for sure. Like it, mm-hmm. you know, but now it just doesn't, I think age helps too. For, for everyone, I think people, as they get older, a lot of people just, um, not everyone, but a lot of people start to just care less about, you know, what people think of them. It's no different than when you're 16 in high school or 22, you usually already have started that progression of not caring as much. But anyways, we digress. I mean, we were looking at T-bills and um, debt levels. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Now we went to Jada Pinkett yeah. Smith yeah, and, you need and life, personal you need development. An, you need an immunity to criticism in life, for sure. And I just think, I'm just thinking that scenario, if you're sitting at the front row, or not the front row, wherever they were in the Oscars there, you know the comedy sketch or the little comedy intro that is happening at the beginning is roasting people. Like, I mean, that's kind of half the fun. Well, I haven't gone to a comedy club in a long time, um, but when I've been and sat close i you're ready to be i knew that it was like 50 50 chance yeah you know i mean if he was talking to somebody else about his wife and then kind of demeaning her but i mean it was it was comedy it was comedy yeah and it wasn't really like a i understand there's the illness side of things but it wasn't like a degrading type of comment yeah like you know there's way i've heard way worse things said about and to people but also i think if you're sitting at that spot and you know what you're going to. If it's something that's sensitive to you, I feel like they're all friends. They probably could have just said something to Chris Rock saying, hey, Chris, you know what? Can you stay off that topic? Yeah. I, I'm sure they all know each other. No? You know what you're going to. I saw something that Chris Rock, sale, ticket sales, had, had his, his prices had increased and ticket sales were up for his show no in the upcoming weeks. Oh so so <laughs> yeah, okay. it led some credence to the... Uh, some, yeah, any publicity is good publicity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, back to serious macroeconomic analysis here. Here, um, I just retweeted this on my Twitter handle, which is on Twitter. My Twitter uh, handle is Tom Karadza. So if you want to look at this chart, you can just go. I don't put out new tweets very often. It's probably the latest one. But if you want to date, it, I retweeted that out on March 30th. So it's a, it's a tweet that Lynn Alden put out with a chart and the, t- the title of the chart is the total U.S. debt as a percentage of GDP. And there's this blue line that goes all the way back to the 1920s and the line starts in the 1920s at like 20, sorry, 30%. And then it goes into the 1940s and 1950s and it peaks out at 120% of debt to GDP. And then it goes all the way down to into the 1970s, back down to like, let's call it 35%. And then from there, it just does a steady climb up until current day where it sits at about 100 and let's call it 20%. So it kind of, in the 1920s, it went from 20% to 120, then all the way down in the 1970s, back to like 30%, and then all the way up to 120. And what kind of Lynn does a great job in this chart is she overlays... CPI 
real yields. I just want to make sure I'm getting that straight. Yeah, sorry. She Yeah, she overlays treasury bill yields onto this chart. And what you see that these treasury bill yields, or in, said it a different way, inflation-adjusted treasury, treasury bill, bill yields are negative in the 1940s. So the entire time that debt got to 120% of GDP, real rates were negative. And by real rates, the way you calculate that is you would take the interest rate out there. So let's call it in Canada. I think the overnight lending rate is like 0.5. It went up 0.25%. It's like 0.5, something like that. And you would subtract inflation. And everyone's going to, multiple people have argued with me over the years, like you don't take that rate. You take like the five-year rate and everyone decides which different rate they're going to take. But I'm taking the overnight lending rate and subtracting inflation. And that's how you're, you know, you might take the five-year or the 10-year bond rate in Canada. So whatever is your kind of rate of choice, you would take the interest rate that you're getting and you su subtract inflation. And after you do that, that number is the real rate. And currently, if you know, you know, whatever rate of, uh, rate of interest you're going to use, if it's 0.5% or if it's like 2% and you subtract inflation in this country, which is about 5%, you're going to get a negative number, meaning we have negative inflation. And what she's done in this chart, it shows that for a 10-year window... Negative rates. Sorry, you have negative rates. Thank you. I was trying to... In my head, I'm like, negative inflation. I was sorry. trying to figure that out. You have, that's you, deflation. You, you have, like, you, we're not seeing deflation. No, that's you have saying. negative real rates. So the nominal rate might be 0.5% or 2%, whatever you're going to use as your interest rate. But when you subtract inflation, you know, if you're using 2%, and you subtract 5% inflation in this country that was recently reported, you're going to get negative 3% real rate. Got it. And then over a 10-year window here, when, when the debt to GDP in the 1940s was over 100%, rates were negative for the entire decade of the 1940s and going into the 1950s. Meaning that Whatever the interest rate was that you could achieve on, you know, a 10-year bond or whatever it is that you're buying and you subtract inflation, it's a negative number. And now, since the year 2010 on this chart, it's been about negative every year since it looks like there was an anomaly in about 2018 or so. But it was negative every year from about 2000 and let's call it 10 approximately. For the last 10 years, it's been negative real rates. But the thing here is, the debt to GDP percentage is still at 120%. Rates only went positive when the debt got back down to about 70% in the 1950s. So in our current era, debt is not at 70%. It's still at 120%. We've already been running negative real rates for a decade, which means to me, we have a lot of negative real rates ahead of us. So whatever they do to raise rates over the next year, so let's say they raise rates a quarter point or a half point or even a full point over the next year, year and a half. To me, as long as the debt to GDP is this high, we are still going to have inflation running much higher than whatever rates are, meaning the real rate is negative, which also means to me in that environment, you want to own hard assets. So no matter what anybody says in the real estate headlines that we're about to see this spring as the market, you know, the market's cool. As we record this, the market's cooling off a little bit, right? We're not getting like 10 offers on every... every 10. 
10. It was uh, sometimes what it was, was 50. It or, was like 30 or yeah. yeah, 50. But then it cooled down a little bit. We're getting like five to 10 yeah. and three. And now we're not seeing any. We're seeing some listings go up in Barrie and St. Catharines. They're not getting, they're holding offers and not getting anything and having to relist the property. But so I think we're about to see some real estate headlines where we're going to get negative headlines saying, oh, the real estate market's cooling, the month over month numbers aren't looking good. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, there we go. We told you the real estate market's going to crash. And when I look at this chart, I'm like, whoa, hold on a second. Nothing goes straight up. The real estate market might cool for us for a second here. But I think over the next 10 years until debt comes in order in the U.S. because Canada always copies what the U.S. does and we have about the same debt to GDP as the U.S. does. You know, we calculate a little differently and people can argue about that as well, but we have about the same, which means to me, we're going to have negative real rates here and any environment where you have negative real rates where inflation is outpacing the interest rate that you get, you want to own hard assets. So, so basically, what you're so to so sum up what you're saying in the 19 to if we're going back to the 1940s and looking at the 1940s and saying, hey, this looks similar, then for rate before rates went positive, we were at about a 70 percent debt to um, GDP ratio. Yeah, and if now we're at 120, I know you 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 stated this. I'm just trying to summarize it. To, and right now we're at 120 percent debt to GDP. So we need it to go down to if if we're we're following the models of the forties, we need it to drop um, to seventy percent before realistically we might be able to see those go up. So until that drops, so whatever, how long is it going to take us to get from one twenty to seventy? That's really the question. And at that point, then rates maybe they turn positive again. Correct. Right. So that's that's kind of what that's what we're trying to see. What's interesting too is these negative rates are seem to have prolonged a little bit longer even already than they have in the past. Um, in the forties as well. But yeah, it's an interesting, it, it, it's really interesting because well, right. it with, it, it's, it's the one thing that I think a lot of people, they, they talk, when they talk about rates so often, I guess maybe I'm just, maybe because I look at a lot of real estate headlines and stuff like that. They talk about rates and they talk about mortgage rates and what's going to happen to homeowners and stuff. And I get it. I get it. Like that matters. It 100% matters. But the bigger picture is if rates move, it's, it's every borrower. It's not just people with mortgages. It's every so the, borrower. And the, and the biggest borrower is the government. So if rates move, then the government has to pay so much more interest. And you've shared this a number of times as well. And then, then there's bigger problems. Then like the renewal rate on your mortgage is going to be the least of your worry. If rates spike up like 3 4%, the re- mortgage renewal rate is going to be literally the least of your worries because there's going to be way bigger structural problems going on, like massive. And that's why it's going to be hard to do. So they're trying to wean this debt down slowly. And what's interesting- well, Through financial repression. Yeah. And what's interesting is is in the 40s, you can see a couple of years, like we have, you know, this chart's showing the, the U.S. Um, real- uh, the rates, which went about minus six percent here, and they had a, a year there which was about minus six or seven percent too. They had a couple years there. They had one big year where it was minus seventeen. Yeah, it was like nineteen forty six yeah. or something like they that. Had one yeah. big year, and I'm just wondering if they're trying to do ours more slowly and lengthen the process because they don't want that to happen. So I'm just wondering if we're gonna see uh, see that one big year happen like that, where where inflation really spikes and, and, and rates go and, and real rates go go largely negative. And it's it's looking at this chart, and I know you're listening to this and you're not seeing the chart, but but when you look at this chart, you would think to yourself then if this if history kind of repeats here, 
then we are looking at like it possibly another five to eight years at least of negative real rates. And, and to me, then that makes it set a different way. That means inflation is higher than the interest rate. And when inflation is higher than the interest rate, I just want to own hard assets because my money is being debased at a higher rate than I can earn a return in interest. So I just want to own hard assets in that type of environment. There's more and more money going out into the system. Well, as opposed to what? Like you're talking about cash? I guess I'm talking about cash. Yeah. 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 Is, is that, then, yeah, it makes perfect sense. If prices of things are going up, real things, then why do you want cash? I mean, I, we well, talking- I guess I'm saying it that way because it, it's kind of like I'm like, I, it, it simplifies the whole real estate discussion to me because the real estate discussion is often like, oh, well, Canada compared to other countries, we have more debt per you know family or prices relative to other G7 countries are higher. And those things never take into account variables like supply and demand, population growth. They never take into interest rates. Like is our interest rate the same here in Canada compared to the US or other countries? There's all these other variables. And you have to look at all that to really have an honest discussion. Whereas this is just a real simple way to look at the entire picture for me. It's like, oh, inflation's gonna be higher than real rates. We're gonna have negative real rates in that type of environment, own hard assets, simple. Yeah, except your argument is long-term. And then the other, most of the other things that you're talking about, like headlines and, 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 and whatever, projections and reports and that type of stuff are generally short-term. Because everyone's just always like, well, what's gonna happen this year? What's gonna happen in the next six months? And yeah, I mean, prices don't go straight up. Even during inflationary times, prices don't have to go straight up. They can go you know, up and choppy and come back down and then up again and choppy. Like they, they, they go all over the place. So your horizon is longer than what most of these things look at. And I think that's where sometimes the disconnect can be in the way you're looking at things compared to what you see and read and stuff like that. I, I agree with no, no, what but that's saying. fair. I see what you're saying. I agree because with if you. somebody's worried about prices in the next six months or one year, well, shit, they could come down. There's no doubt about it. For sure. They went up like 30% in the last year. Maybe year over year, it's going to look negative. Yeah, but when did you ever, you know, to that point, like when have you, when you go buy a car, right? So you buy the car, What you know, we're in April. So let's say you buy the car in April. Well, the promotion in April might not be on your model of car, but you buy the car and the promotion might be in June where you get the interest rate break or you get the extra factory rebate of 1500 bucks or whatever. And, and I know we're talking larger numbers, so I'm not trying to make light of it, but the, the, sometimes it feels like some investors and some people will have an obsession with trying to always get in at the exact perfect time. And historically, in any asset class, there's no one that, you know, it doesn't, any trader or any investor that you've seen, people have gotten lucky and they say, well, I kind of got lucky. I didn't know. Or they've been making a call for three years and betting on the market moving a certain direction for three years. It finally moves and, and they cash in. But it's like to, to try to time it perfectly is, is tough. And that's, I think, where the, the challenge lies. If you, when you remove that from your equation and, and use, you know, use the fundamentals you're talking about and look into kind of certain statistics and, and numbers and, and facts around the market and understand it, then make your decision based on that. I think that's where the disconnect is, I find, is that so much, and maybe it's just more now, 
or maybe because I feel like I have a longer term outlook, but so much is based on just short term impact. So like the recent report that came out from Oxford Economics about the Canadian real estate market, it said that prices prices were going down 24 percent. Um, uh, from now until 2024. They were supposed to level out this year. Rates were going to continue to increase. It would cause them to about level off this year, start falling slightly. They would fall through next year to 2024. Overall, though, they're like, yeah, it's not going to really have that much of an impact on the market. It's still going to be a relatively healthy market and that type of stuff. But that, so what happens after 2024? So, and what do you do? And then, and then let's say they do. Let's say they do. I'm, you know, what do you do with your money from now until 2024? Right, if we're in an inflationary environment, which is very clear that we are, so you have to believe now that inflation's now just going to stop, right? That inflation's going to stop. They're going to raise rates, so you're going to be able to get yield on your savings elsewhere. I don't know where you get them. Like the rates are going at 0.5 percent, so essentially you're still losing. So you know, and there's opportunity cost and all this other stuff. So what do you what do you you know like what's next? And sometimes that's the part that I feel is missing. Man, it's, it's a really, yeah, because you're, you're making perfect sense. And it's, I just feel like it's it's just a mess to try to, like, it shouldn't be this complicated, I guess is what I'm thinking. Yeah, you should be able to save money. Yeah. And have it save yeah. money. It's like, why do we have to all become armchair macroeconomic analysts? Like, Why is anyone listening to this stuff of any interest, and myself included, because we're all trying to figure out how to navigate a system and the game of the system, and it's just overly complicated. Like, yeah, it's but- completely stupid. But the, it's so, making me pissed. Yeah. But that, <laughs> I think that goes back to probably the biggest downfall of centralized money. Mm-hmm. Because when the money's centralized and people can manipulate it a certain way, yeah. then you need to then manipulate what you do to try to get around their manipulation. Because yeah. the reason you're doing it is because the government's manipulating the money, right? Because they manipulate the interest rates, they manipulate the amount of money in the system. So then for you to not be impacted by that, you have to see, it's basically like they're changing the rules of the game with every new announcement they're making. So then you have to adjust the way you you play the game to adjust to the changing rules on a regular basis. And that's that's the money. That's what money's, that's essentially what money's turned into. So then if we get into something else that is, is like, you know, it's almost like what you said earlier, like what is money, right? So then if you get into something else that you're able to then, use as money and that people will value as money as well well then you're starting to remove yourself from the game a little bit yeah yeah it's you're you're hitting on so many big points there because you know who i spoke to yesterday that I, I didn't know this sorry just as a side note um i didn't look this up to see if it's true but apparently um the it, there's articles all over the internet too that, that it was the guy well, you can believe what you read on the internet well no i know but he told me so i'll make him my maybe there's some, <laughs> some credibility there too but it, um a uh, gentleman that was the first person, I'm going to tell you this, he was the first person to sell a property for Bitcoin in Canada. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I should, I, I should look up his name and just see if I see it here. Yeah, I forget how many years ago. He told me the whole story. And oh, okay. I was going to say, because I feel like I know somebody out on the West Coast of Canada did it years and years ago. But uh, see what came to mind when you thought of money? Bitcoin. Interesting. Eh? Uh, there's, there's, a, there's, this, there's this quote on page 70 of the Bitcoin standard about sound money. And Nick, it's, it's, it's making me... Th- I thought of this when you were talking about like, why is it so complicated and money? It said, this quote says, service to others as the only avenue to prosperity concentrates society's efforts on production, cooperation, capital accumulation, and trade. Service to others. 
And right now, I feel like we have a free lunch with the money system. We don't have service to others as the primary mechanism to earn money. What we have is a system where a bank or a government can create money out of thin air, give it to people. They can use that money to spend on goods and services as they see fit. And the only people harmed in that situation, because the government got free money, the, I know they have to pay interest on it, but essentially they just needed money, they got the free money. Or if it was a bank giving out a loan, they got the free money. So the only people harmed in our current money system are the people producing the goods and services in the economy. Because in our current money system, when new money enters the system, it dilutes the value of all the other money in the system because it's creating more and more of it. So the free lunch here is that the banks got money for free. The government got money for free. The only people abused and have to pay the piper in this whole situation are the people earning everyone, the only everybody people else are in the economy. Else, yeah. Because the money that you have in your pocket is diluted as new money comes in. So, so there is no free lunch. And the people suffering are the people that don't even know that they're suffering. And I think that's why this whole, when what we call today's money system is actually wrong. Like if you think about it, when you take out a loan and a bank creates the money out of thin air, they don't have it and give Nick, gives Nick Karadza the loan. When Nick- explain, Just to explain that for a second, because a lot of people might still not fully understand that. I think- Because right? like, you know, the, traditionally you think when you go to the bank for a loan, the bank takes its money that it has in its- let's say vault, quote unquote vault, which is, you know, electronic numbers on the screen, but whatever, let's say it takes it from a vault and gives you the money. That's what banks are there for. They have yeah. money to loan out. Yeah. I think the way you're, we're all taught or it's kind of assumed is that banks take deposits from people. They give people an interest rate on the deposit of, let's just use easy numbers, 1%. Then they take those deposits and they lend them out to Nick Carradza, who wants a loan at 3%, and they make the difference, and that's how banking works. But that's not, that's not at all yeah. how banking <laughs> works. The way banking works is that they don't have to have any savings at all. I mean, I think it's like a 4% equity to a kind of debt ratio that they have, but they have a tiny, tiny amount of deposits compared to the amount of loans or debt that they have out there. And so banks, when you go to get a loan from them, they don't have money in the vault. They really just create the money by entering some new numbers in a computer somewhere. And if you actually physically want to withdraw it, they kind of print it out of the teller's machines, but that money literally came out of thin air. It didn't exist as savings anywhere. It was created as brand new currency and given to you as a loan. It literally did not exist before you saw when the, the, the day you signed the loan paperwork or the mortgage paperwork or the car loan paperwork, you created new money. Every time you spend any money on your visa card, anytime you charge anything on your visa card, you are actually creating new dollars into existence. So when you go to Starbucks and you spend $20 on like two drinks, can that get you two drinks or is that now one? <laughs> if it, you know, on one drink at Starbucks for 20 bucks and you put it on your visa, when you gave it, when you put that charge on the visa and visa sent the money over to Starbucks for payment, visa created that money out of thin air. And that's where I think the biggest mystery is that I was, somebody on Twitter was going back and forth with me. It was this guy, Mike Green, who's a big macroeconomic um, analyst who's pretty well respected. He's on Real Vision a lot. And I comment to him, I, you know, I think, I forget what exactly we were having the discussion on. It was about money. And in his definition of money, he replied in one of the comments back to me, money only exists 
to extinguish debt. And I thought, oh my gosh, in his worldview, actual money is debt. And when you take on the new debt and you give the, the, the money back, it extinguishes the debt. He, he really believes that's, a, he either believes that's a proper money system, that debt is money, or he doesn't understand there's a completely different definition of money that maybe comes from like the Austrian school of economics where money is not debt. So he, he's either just commenting that like, yeah, money's debt because the only purpose money, in his worldview, the only purpose money serves is to extinguish debt. Yeah, whereas in your worldview, it's to... It's a savings of my excess efforts. So my time and labor, if I didn't consume that immediately and I needed to save my time and labor somewhere, I'm going to use the most marketable good in the economy to hold my time and labor. So if I produce $100 worth of productivity and the service to others in the economy, $100 worth of value. 100 Wayne Gretzky working cards. Yeah, $100 worth of something that I've created. But I only spend $80 for my family, for food and you know mortgage and whatever it is that I'm spending. The remaining $20 I want to save in something that is sound money, which is usually the most marketable good in the economy. And the characteristics of the most marketable good in the economy are its saleability, a good saleability across time, space, and scales. And saleability for someone not familiar. So saleability is how easily can you sell or get rid of something if you had to? And could you do that easily over space? Could you like, you know, if you're using cows as money well if you have to pay somebody to cows you like the cows i love right? cows yeah you know i love cows you like beef we lost like no but cows. we lost a lot of cows in croatia we had to go looking for them in rainstorms i remember it was horrible stepped in a lot of cow <laughs> crap when we we're taking them back know, cows too. and cows and pigs and chickens are like part of and donkeys are part of our upbringing when the cows yeah. decided to run like most of the time they wouldn't move and then you kind of had to whip it with the little willow branches yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah. willow but, branch what, i don't know if it was a willow what, branch i don't know what it was a little like stick a yeah i guess it wouldn't be willow <laughs> yeah in my head for some reason it was that but anyways and then when those things decided to move and we had to like bring them back to the barn oh and they decided to like run oh, a little yeah, bit or whatever because they, 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 they would hurt you if you were in the way oh yeah, they yeah. Would tra- like yeah. that's a lot of do you mass. remember when they would fight each other two young bull or an older bull and a young bull they would literally you know in the cartoons when you see like a bull kick up its leg and kick up the, they actually really do yeah. that in real life and when they smash heads oh. the, the, the noise is just oh my like, yeah. god thunderous yeah thunderous yeah oh. that's the farm days yeah but so, um okay so if you were using if you're using cows as money saleability across space is difficult because if i had to pay somebody who lives in san francisco and yeah. i'm in toronto to get the money over there is a real pain and that's it's like, why gold got really popular because you could hold a lot of value in a real small yeah. pouch and that's why paper money got even more that's popular. why paper money got even more value yeah there's i don't want to say value, valuable more, more convenient yeah more yeah. yeah yeah exactly well and they were also forced to use it but but it's there was the convenience factor was there yeah and then saleability across scales is how divisible is it and is it, you know is that fungible like if i if i chop it up into little pieces will you accept the little pieces of the money as good and you can measure that like as an ounce an ounce or as a satoshi a satoshi can you chop it up into really equal forms and saleability across time is that does it hold its value does it decay does it lose value over time so well, okay so and i and i yes i get all that so but let's just let me play devil's advocate here for a second so you save this money right mm-hmm. so you have this extra effort and you have some savings but you live in in Canada 
and you get a lot of services. You have a lot of clean, you know, uh, roads and you have uh, sloop police and fire department and all that type of stuff. And, you know, maybe the, in, the inflation is what's needed for you to contribute to all these other things that you have in society. You know, so maybe that's the way they're, and I, they're not doing it openly, but maybe that's, that's where it's coming. There's taxes and maybe, you know, maybe I think probably most people listening to this feel like they pay enough in taxes. feels like we, we do. That's for sure. Between income and gas tax and tax on every, you know, sales tax and everything else you can think of. Um, but maybe there's that component. So, so your savings are still there, but they're diminished because as time goes on, you're contributing to the economy, to the, 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 the society you live in as part of that money. And the way they're doing that is by stealing it through inflation. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So to summarize what you're saying is that I, I work really hard. I managed to save some of my money so that I could have a long time preference and think and plan for the future. Which is, respo- and, which is which is responsible, responsible and how you build great things. You need to plan long term and long, a great, not just great things, great societies, great societies, yeah. a great everything yeah. usually takes a long term effort. But in holding my savings, I'm going to be robbed and stolen from through inflation because I'm taxed when I make the income. I'm taxed on sales uh, through a sales tax when I spend my money. So I'm, ta- I'm taxed when I make the money. I'm taxed when I sell the mo- spend the money. And then any savings I have are off. silently taxed through inflation by lowering the value of my dollars as more do- dollars are stuffed into the system because the government spends more money than they have. And people are going to defend that saying, well, to grow an economy, that's what you need to do. So I'm taxed now three times yeah. on the earning, on the spending, and on the holding. So then, then the the root of the problem is, is the money. Necessarily, well, is it necessarily? It's not necessarily the money; it's the control of the money by the government. The form and, of and money. deficit yes. deficit spending. Sure, it's, it's really form. deficit spending yeah. because if they didn't, if if the government had to account for everything that they spent and they had to have a balanced budget, well, then de- with you get rid of de- deficit spending, it fixes a lot of the problems. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it fixes a whole lot of it. Yeah, right. We just need to separate money from state because the ability for the government to spend more money than it has to be financed by the creation of new money dilutes the value of savings of Canadians and Americans and global citizens across the world. And you're le- what it does is it creates a society that is always scrambling to put its money in the next best thing. Like it, it, it forces people to invest in real estate because it forces people to say, oh my gosh, like I, I need to get these properties. They're going quote unquote up in value. Nobody sees that it's their dollars losing value. Nobody sees that. Mm-hmm. Everyone just says, oh, the, the pro- property prices are going up in value. Well, it's harder to see that to me. It's harder right? to see it for sure. So it creates a society where everyone's just scrambling. But if you could, imagine we lived in a world that instead of, instead of the, I, I love Jeff, Jeff Booth, the way he says it, instead of a, an abundance of currency and a scarcity of goods and services, Imagine we had a scarcity of money. It was fixed, right? It couldn't be inflated. It was scarce. It would create an abundance of goods and services because what would happen is your money would go up in value. And so so what you would have is the ability to buy any goods and services that you wish. Your money wouldn't go up in value. Your money would go up in 
purchasing power. Purchasing power. And, that's a better, yeah, sure. Right? That's a better way to say Well, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with yeah, you. Yeah. I'm just trying to explain it to, if, if the concept's a little bit foreign to people, they haven't heard that term before. It's, it's hard initially to be like, well, how's the money go up? The whole thing's value? confusing. But yeah. it goes up in purchasing power because, and I think Jeff's Booth arg- Jeff Booth's argument um, is that because we're becoming more efficient and technology is making us more efficient, that those deflationary forces are causing um, that efficiency is causing deflation in a lot of areas. So a lot of goods become cheaper to make um, because of the efficiencies that we've created. And if your money then holds its value, then its value is then greater than the becomes greater and greater than the goods because of the efficiency to bring the prices down of those goods. Yes. Right. Yes. I don't know if that explains. No, it. No, no, yes. Because yeah. I just, he's written a whole. We're trying to summarize his whole book in like yeah. uh, three minutes here. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the point. Right. Yes. So that's how. That's how you know. So when you say up in value, that's what yeah. you mean. Whereas in, right uh, now we have an abundance of money. It's just created constantly. It's cheap. Everybody can get a loan for like one percent or whatever it is, two, three, four percent interest. Like not eight or ten or twelve. We're talking cheap money. So everybody can get money for mortgages, get money for business loads, get money for whatever. The government gets money, borrows it out. It borrows it from the Bank of Canada um, or through bonds that the Bank of Canada then buys. And these bonds are paying out like 2%. So we get cheap money. So we have an abundance of money. And when there's a lot of money chasing the same amount of goods and services, or if the amount of money is growing faster than the goods and services in the economy, it makes the goods and services go up in price. It's taking more of the dollars that are being printed to acquire the goods and services, making life more expensive for everyone, where we just want the reverse. And the argument against the reverse is like, well, Tom, if we had money that went up in value all the time, what would be the incentive for anybody to create anything as a business owner? Because if they're going to make stuff, the cost of them making the raw, buying the raw materials is just constantly going up and up and up. And the people for, sorry, no, no, the cost of the raw material, let me say this differently. Why would anybody, how would that work? Because if the value of people's dollars is always going, or money is always going up and up and up, why would they separate themselves from it? Mm-hmm. Because I'll just hold it. Forget it. I don't want to buy Nick Karadza's goods and services. Sure, I want to because hold on to, I want to hold, my hold them. But there's two things that happen. People always spend money for things they need and want. Because if you didn't, everybody knows that like Apple stock's gone up over in the last 10 years. Why didn't you just hold Apple stock forever or Amazon stock? People sell their Amazon stock even if they're sold in the company because they want a house, a car, pay for a wedding. Like that's just well, everything. So, I the mean, real people, world. People sell their investment properties because yes. they want to do whatever else yeah. they want to do. But what it also world. does is if you know the value, the purchasing power of your dollars is going up, you're only going to spend it on things that are made well that you really, really think are good. It's funny that you said that because I was going to say that earlier just about a minute ago about when you when you have less money chasing things, then you also don't buy... you Bullshit. Yeah, I was going to use a lot of the stuff. I mean, look, China does make some good things as well, but I mean, the stereotype For around... Sure. Well, a lot I mean, of, all the uh, iPhones are actually made yeah, in China. but a lot of the stereotype around things made in China are just that they were you know cheap and stuff. And they are. They, there is a lot of cheap stuff. Many are, yeah. And my daughter has a bunch of these little fidget <laughs> things that pop in and out that we've spent money on that I'm like, why do we own these? That are definitely toxic. Oh, 100% toxic. The and plastic just, that those things are made of. And I can't <laughs> throw a single one out, man. She sniffs, it, she sniffs it out. She's got like 80 of them. I'm like, how do I just get rid of this thing? Actually, I think you guys bought her a bag <laughs> yeah, for... For her birthday, the I was like, oh, like geez, 50 of them. Yeah. I think Sienna bought it for yeah, like $3 yeah. from Amazon. Yeah, and I think you were laughing as you delivered it to our house for sure. 
but anyways, that's uh, but 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 that's the that's the point. Then you, it's just more select, and because if you go back, so what I was thinking is if you go back in time, um, you know, to maybe I mean we're talking about the forties. I'm just we, watching your time because yeah, I know you have a hard stop. We can we we can talk about the forties, but back then, like, it was more about the quality. You know, you wanted yeah. something like I saw, like, well, did you oh, see I know the way things this. were made? Yeah, that's the difference compared to the way they've been made in the last 30 years. When mass produced, like mass production has just t chasing more and more dollars. It's the mass production of dollars, right? That's that's kind of what they go hand in hand. It's almost like um, Safedine's book, the fiat, uh, the fiat standard, right? Yeah, it's yeah, of, it's, it's 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 it all makes sense. Yeah, the whole idea is that you hold you want a form of money. That whole, imagine we had a form of money that went up in value and it, its sole purpose wasn't to extinguish debt. Its whole purpose was to increase in value or purchasing power. So as you aged, you had this beautiful stability. savings of mm -hmm. stability. And not only that, we could have an older generation instead of coupon clipping. I don't know if that's still a thing where people, I don't think people clip. Coupons. No, there's apps. There's apps for that kind of stuff. <laughs> but like coupon clipping or trying to like sit, you know, cut their costs down and, and you know, really be scared at how much they can afford in their rent as they age, we could produce an older generation that has enough savings to mentor other people, mm -hmm. to share their wisdom with the younger generation. Whereas now I feel like we have a generation of older people who are petrified that they have enough money to survive their last years. And what a way to live. So you've lived your whole life, worked on everything that you, you've been told to do properly, worked for somebody. Paid all your taxes. Paid all your taxes. And you're left in a situation where you're scared you don't have enough money and your money's going to run out before you live. Wouldn't it be nicer? And, and, and then if people do have some money, like how many people now do we, we still have people here who will reach out to us sometimes saying, I'm 65. Is it too late me? Can I, for me, can I get into real estate? Can I buy a property now? Why should they have be having to think about that at the age of 65? Because if they had some savings that would go up in value, they probably wouldn't have to think that way. So as a society, we're like morally corrupted at its core because of the system of money that comes from debt. And when I see somebody on Twitter respond to me that the sole purpose of money is to extinguish debt, I'm like, exactly. And that's the whole reason that everything's wrong with the current money system. Because the way that person's defining money is the absolute, to me, incorrect way to define it. Mm. And the, the way now, that, so that, you know, if you take the older people, like in your example, they only, the, the, I shouldn't say the only way, the, the better way to do that, or the way they're forced to do it to protect their savings is to then assume risk by investing, by investing in, something. in stocks or real estate or assets or whatever, you know, assets that they, they, some sort of financial assets to try to protect that purchasing power. And then when all those assets prices fluctuate so back to what we were talking about they don't go straight up so prices fluctuate so if you're at an age where you started doing that at 65 but you need the money at 69 and prices have come down at that point you might not be in the best situation because you can't you know and and you've been forced to take on that risk though otherwise you knew you were going to run out of money or purchasing power based on your the money that you had available to you because of inflation and you can see this it's there's evidence of this in our society because as people age right through Toronto and across Canada, what's the most valuable thing they often have left in their lives? The house that they live in, not the savings in the bank account. That to me is the very definition of what is happening with the money system. It's the hard assets are going up in value. The, the money in the bank that they've been holding 
because a lot of older people just hold cash, loses value. Like, that's it. Like, why is it that everybody, the, the most valuable thing that everybody, everybody holds is their house? Should it really be that way? The money should be the most marketable good in the economy. The money should hold its value. It should be the most saleable good, the most saleable across, across space, time, and scales. And right now, we have a form of money that to me is none of those things. And one more thing on this topic is that a lot of people will attack gold and say, well, gold failed. You know, what you're saying is incorrect because there was a gold standard for some time, didn't quite work out. It's not that gold failed. It's that when the paper receipts started being used on top of gold, it allowed the banking system to kind of cheat. And instead of having a hard money system, they printed more receipts than they had gold ounces in the bank. And it diluted the values of the receipts. And then the gold became centralized by the central banks so that nobody could audit how much gold any of the banks were really holding. And it became a moot point because the government said, well, it doesn't even matter. We're just going to use these paper receipts now as a form of money. And we're going to create these new paper receipts out of thin air anytime you need them, whenever you take a loan or a mortgage, according to our bank act, that's the way it works. So we kind of went away from this history of using some form of hard money in some capacity. Like all through history, there's you're either using gold as a form of hard money or a percentage of your currency is backed by gold. Maybe it's not 100%, but it's like 30 to 60% of the currency supply has some component of hard money. And the reason I like Bitcoin is that it's difficult to centralize it. And if you tell me you're issuing Bitcoin receipts, I could say, well, bullshit, I'm going to audit you. Do you really have the Bitcoin or not? And to audit somebody's gold reserves right now as a country, like if, if you know now people are starting to talk about with the war going on in the Ukraine and Russia, that Russia's asking for gold and other countries are trying to say like, we're not going to pay in gold and they're backing the ruble by gold. Well, you have to trust that the person you are dealing with actually has the gold they say they have because you might give them the oil, it might take them a few days to fly the crate load of freaking gold over to you. But with Bitcoin, the, me, the reason to me it's a better form of money is that it's completely audible instantly. It's settled really, really quickly. And that's why, to me, it's going to overtake everything as the purest, best form of money, whether we agree with it or not, because humans naturally gravitate to the best form of money. It takes time. It's not like everybody wakes up one day and says, oh, Bitcoin's the money. Of course, Bitcoin's the best money. We're going to use it. But to me, Bitcoin has the best characteristics, saleability across space, time, and scales that we've ever seen. And over the next 10 and 20 and 30 years, it's just going to mature into that role. Whereas really right now, because the money system has been so bastardized, it's hard for people to see that coming to fruition. But and, that, and to be fair, though, that is also your belief through looking at history is that, 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 that like you it, said, yeah. humans go to their the hard, tendencies, their tendencies to go to the hardest form of money, because the risk is that you collect Bitcoin and then a couple Nobody of years go by it. and no one wants <laughs> yeah. it, right? That, yeah. And then totally. you know, and that's how people are saying it, that's why it's going to zero because no one's going to want it. It does seem because we've kind of gone back and forth on this point before and I've always kind of counter 
you know, counter mm. your promotional, your natural promotional. I work for the Bitcoin to, marketing to department. There's, there's many of us. I don't mean there's promotional, but I mean, you took a personality test and you came out as a promoter or something like that. That's why I was, <laughs> that's why I was saying that. Right. But just your kind of like enthusiasm is a better word around it. I'm like, oh, it's just, when I hear I promoter, just, I think of myself at the CNE. Remember the CNE on like a soapbox, just screaming uh-huh. out Bitcoin here. Bitcoin. Anybody needs some I think Bitcoin? About, I think of my friends in high school that used to hand out flyers for different like all ages yeah, yeah, clubs yeah, or whatever. Parties. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I think. But, um, but uh, so you're sorry. I shouldn't say I, I didn't mean that wasn't the best word. Enthusiasm probably around it. I'm like, okay, let's look at the opposite side of this. You can call me a promoter. It's no, but that's that's what I that's that's the flip side of it, right? But that even when we started having these discussions, when I don't know, I guess when we started getting into it a couple of years ago, the likelihood of that does seem is it still possible 100 percent is still possible that no one wants it and, and the value of it is is diminished greatly but the likelihood of that has definitely dropped in the last two and years. day by day it seems like it drops a little bit more every I, day. yeah I, I agree that's that's definitely dropped but that's that's what it comes to like you could conceivably like i don't know i'm trying to look around at something you don't have you could pick up led lights but there are too there's too many of them around but if there's something else you could start collecting something else and that people just might not want it but what, what's interesting as I say that, I never because I was going to use Wayne Gretzky rookie cards as an example, but then I was like, but they're rare, so people end up wanting them. It just seems like, like to your point about humans, when there is like a limited number of something, yeah, we naturally kind of the stock migrate the flow. towards that, yeah, you know. So if you think about anything that you think about Ferraris, think you know, you naturally just migrate towards something that there's less of. You know, we're not into Rolexes, but how many friends do we know that mm-hmm. like will show us their Rolex and say, you know, this is one out of 450. Yeah. You know, and there's value associated with that even yeah. on the, on the, when you buy it new or on the resale market. Yeah. Like, like the guys into Rolexes know those numbers and they know all the models. I look at them and uh, other than the color, they all look the same to me. Yeah. But yeah. if you know that and, and in money just becomes a universal thing where people, on any continent all kind of agree like, yes, I understand this as a form of money, as opposed to maybe a Rolex where some people in different countries, oh, Rolex is pretty universal. It just doesn't, it doesn't have the characteristics that we talked about, like um, most saleability across space, time and scales. It's right. funny. Most of the goods that are rare, cause art's another one. Art, land is land, a natural one, yeah. but gold, most, gold. Yeah. But most of the other stuff, if, cause if you brought me a currency from some country, like a paper money, yeah. then I don't give a damn. No, like, <laughs> like I don't like, care about this? it so much. Where is this from? Yeah. yeah. You know what someone pulled out the other day? Um, I was, I was uh, someplace yesterday and a guy that I was with pulled out, um, a couple thousand dollar, Can- remember the old Canadian, Canadian thousand, thousand dollar, dollar bills? bills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't seen one of those in, yeah. in Are a they while. still around? I think he's held on to them for a while. Yeah. Like he has them in his wallet. Like he holds yeah, on to yeah, them. Yeah. And I was like, man, I haven't seen one of these yeah. in, in oh, ages. Man. I remember seeing one of those and whoever had that, I'm like, oh my God, you're rich. Yeah. yeah, yeah. thousand dollar bill. Yeah. Well, I mean, at one point. A thousand dollars in no. the eighties. Oh no. I, but remember what a million dollar home was in the eighties? Oh. Right. That was the goal. Remember everyone wanted to be a millionaire. Well, if you looked at a now million a million dollars home, really isn't what a million dollars used to be. Let's face it. Well, no, but yeah, it's a vast difference, but that, and that goes I don't know if you have to go about. though. Cause I know I'm going to talk about this church is how inflation goes up in the forties up and down. And then we'll, we'll wrap you good for a few more minutes or do you have to, if I you have to so. run, no, I, I no one's yeah, come okay. to, to grab me yet okay. for the appointment. So, okay. So the, what I wanted to make, make sure everyone's clear is that, um, Lynn also has this other chart, and I can't remember which one of her reports. She writes the best reports on lynnalden.com. You can find her reports. All her free stuff is so valuable. She has a premium uh, product there as well. But on one of her free reports, she has this 10-year treasury rate versus inflation of the 1940s. And inflation goes up to like 10% for a couple of years in the early 40s. Then from like 1944 to 1946, it's at like 2.5%. 
And then it shoots up in 1947 to like, let me tell you exactly, to about uh, 18%. And then it comes all the way down and actually goes negative. So deflation kind of kicks in a little bit. And then it shoots positive again in 1951 and 52 up to about, let's call it 7% or so. And the reason I'm sharing that is that over the next 10 years, I really believe that that's what we're going to see across all different hard assets. Like you'll see real estate like shoot up like it has over the last two years, you know, in the last year, what has it been like 28% or whatever it's been year over year? It depends on the area. Depends on the area. It's higher. But now we might, we might literally see zero for a year. And then I hope uh, that'd be yeah, good. I know, I know, I know. We all hope. even if it pulls, know, look, pulls mean, back a little bit. Yeah, but like, but then I think in another year and a half from that, that just because of the monetary system that we're in and the financial repression that's necessary with higher inflation than actual rates, we might see it spike up again, ten percent, and then it shoots back down, and then a couple of years pass and it goes back up fifteen percent, and by the end of ten years, what most people will miss in that roller coaster is that everything will be double in price. But 10 years will be gone and they'll be so focused on those shorter term headlines like we talked about the Oxford study that said 24% decline that they won't do anything. And when you see the bigger macroeconomic picture where debt is really too high to pay off in any meaningful way, like what I mean by that is we can't save our way out of debt. We can't pay our way out of debt with GDP growth because it's, it's so high. We can't grow the, the G, global debt to GDP is on a four to one ratio. We can't grow the economy fast enough to pay off the growth of debt. So we're in this death debt spiral that Ray Dalio talks about, the end of our credit cycle. It's discussed in the fourth turning that every 80 years there's a major event like this. So I just feel we're in this period where a lot of people will look at the short-term moves of things, but they'll miss over the next 10 years where there's a probability here. It's not 100%, but it's not zero, that everything doubles from here 10 years and people think, oh, it's just not possible. But 10 years from now, it actually does well, because if they change of financial the, repression. Yeah, and if they change the rules of the game, then anything's possible. Because because it, the, yeah, if you're only making your decisions, decisions thinking the rules are going to stay the same, then it's a very logical argument to think that it's not possible. Very logical. But if you can understand that the rules of the game are constantly changing with every, almost every financial announcement that the governments make, well, then you have to realize that what the game is today is going to be vastly different from what it is 10 years from now. And you need to start planning for the 10 years from now yeah. and play that game Un now. Which, unfortunately, which unfortunately yeah. none of us should have to think this way, exactly. but yes. And that's what I was going to say, which, which is kind of how we started this when you, you were saying that it's not, you know, you don't feel like it's right and it's not the way, you know, you were kind of almost like just a little bit frustrated. About, yeah. About like, this isn't right. Like, why are we, do we even have to be, you know, what, do we have to study economics? Why do we have to talk about this? Yeah. But, but that's, that's the thing because even if you go back 10 years from now, uh, 10 years past, so we're in 20, what year? 2022? 2022. I was going to say 23. You're good. You're good. I'm either ahead or behind a year. I'm never on. <laughs> we're so, coming at you from the future. Yeah. So if we're, if we're going back 10 years, right, the game yeah. now has changed dramatically in 10 years. So if you were playing the game in 2012, for 2012, and just basing your decisions over the next years, thinking the game, the rules hadn't changed from 2012 to 2014, you're already falling behind. You have to kind of play it for the future, which is messy. But if you were playing it for 10, 10 years forward, so from 2012, you, you thought that there was going to be inflation coming, you thought there was going to be money printing, you know, which we had spoken about looking at the numbers and stuff, then you were able to make decisions that 
ended up working out quite well because you were playing kind of with where you well when when property prices started going up at the gta it gives us some context to think oh maybe we're still okay because of what we understand in the global macroeconomic picture and the last 10 years Everyone told us in 2010 to 2012, rates were going up. Remember? Literally everybody. Oh, yeah. Starting every, Everybody. Yeah. Everybody told us. Guys, guys rates are going up. And we were always like, I don't really think so. Like, it doesn't, the math doesn't make sense. And now we're at a point in 2022 where I really think it makes even less sense for them to be able to raise rates. Well, they're much lower now. Um, well, they're not much. It's all small. Not move yeah, but they point. are lower. But, but they right. are lower. So... Yeah, they can they, could, they can move them up, but but inflation's higher. So at the end of the day, then real rates, like we spoke about yeah. earlier, are still so negative that they can move them higher while keeping rates negative. So there might be, uh, you know, headline kind of interest rate moves, but at the the real rates are still so uh, negative, so so negative that it doesn't actually the 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 the, the 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 same it, it might lessen the impact or what's happening with asset prices yeah. and stuff like that but the same kind of principles are still in place yeah so if you're holding a bond that's earning you two percent but the real rate in the world because of inflation is negative five percent let's say you're actually losing five percent a year by getting your two percent a year like it makes no real sense but you're like losing money there is one scenario in which rates can go up like if inflation is ripping at 12 to 15%, you could have interest rates at 6 to 8% and the real rate would still be negative. Because if, if you know, the, the 10-year bond rate was at like 6 or 8%, let's call it 8%, but inflation was at 12%, the real rate is still negative 4. So if you're earning 8%, you're actually losing 4% a year because the assets around you are going up 12%. Yep. So there could be a scenario where rates go way up and it, it would be a situation where inflation is much higher than it is even today. And that's why there's nuance to this whole discussion. You can't just make like these absolute decisions or give absolute answers on anything. Yeah, but it helps to, for at least for us, to have the discussion out loud or listen to other things because it just makes you, at least for us, it makes you think. It makes you just kind of look at things and then kind of reevaluate where you're at and what you want to or not want or should or don't want to change or what course of action you want to take. Do you, do you have to go? I do have to. We'll wrap it up. Okay, so... Uh, there's one uh, one other point. We'll do it another time. We'll leave it at that. So uh, that's it. We squeezed this one in. We got it done. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that episode, the little, uh, I guess, accidental episode that Nick and I kind of did on the fly there. And if you are listening to this and you want some real estate-specific information for the greater Toronto and Southern Ontario area, you can visit rockstarinnercircle.com for free copies of reports, books, videos, links to other podcasts like this. It's all available for you at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.